Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study today. We ask that your spirit would be with us and your angels, that we can see you more clearly. Bless those that are here, the the members of our class that couldn't be here. Watch over and keep them and bring them back to us again. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven in our quarterly, Loved and Loving, John's Epistles. And the title this week is Living as Children of God. And somebody read the memory text for us, which is 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Have you, any thoughts about that text? Have you ever pondered that text? Lavish. Love the word lavish. The, the, the Father has lavished upon us. And, and, and as I was thinking about this, um, this idea of who, who are the children of God? Everybody. Hmm. Everybody, she says. Everybody. And, and, you know, that was the first thought that crossed my mind. I mean, who created mankind? God. And, and in Luke chapter 3, we read in the, in the genealogy of Christ, it, it reads this way, verses 37 and 38. Uh, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is the son of God by creation. What about Eve? Whose daughter was she? God's daughter. Who made the angels? Whose who children would they be? Hmm. Did they cease to be God's children after they sinned? So then what does this passage mean then that we just read? How great is the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. When, when your children grow up, and do you say something like this? How great the love I have for Johnny that I should allow him to be called my son. I mean, that's what's being said here, isn't it? How great God's love that we should be called his children. What's going on? Well, you never, the father never stops loving his children. They may go astray and forget all about him, distrust him, reject him, but he will never give up his love yeah, that's true. He never will give up his love. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think that's what's, what it's talking about here? Do you think Lucifer is being referred to in this passage? Do you think Satan is being referred to in this passage? Thoughts? You, you all think it is? God loves Satan too. Uh, that's not the question. God does love Satan too. The question is, do you think that this passage is referring to Satan and the, the, those who continue and persist in rebellion against God as God's children. I think he's still the son of God. He just chose to hmm. not want to be. Are only the obedient children the children of God? Well, hmm, that's an interesting question, isn't it? See, the issue here is not about creatures being God's children by creation. That's not the issue that John's talking about. Nor is it about God's love for his children. That's not what's being talked about. There is another issue going on in this text. Anybody spot it? Have you ever noticed, parents, that your children look like you? Have you ever noticed that? That your children look like you? Physically, personality, Abilities? Do you not? Do you not notice that? Hmm. 
the question I think that John is getting to is, in our sinful, unregenerate state, do we still look like God? Or are we ugly, deformed, and even disgusting? And maybe that's too strong a word. I'll read to you out of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6. Isaiah 1, verse 6, it says, From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed, nor bandaged, nor soothed with oil. Or, what does it say about our righteousness? <laughs> Filthy rags. And what kind of a rag is it speaking of particularly there? No, no. Mm-mm. It's actually a specific type of rag. A menstrual rag. That's what it's referring to in the context. That's pretty kind of gross, isn't it? That's what we look like unregenerate. That's, that's the reference in the, in the scripture for it. Maybe that text is talking about those of us who have chosen God and are therefore his heirs. But even though we are, as sinners, don't look like God anymore, did God abandon us? Instead, he became one of us. He, he took this condition, says in Isaiah, that he took our infirmities, our iniquities upon himself in order to reveal the truth and win us back to trust and heal us back into his image, to restore God-likeness within us. And then what I see happening in this text is, is what love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, that, uh, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us, it has not known Him. What he's saying is, what incredible love that the Father has sent a Son in order to restore us back to look like our Father, that we will look like Him again. These are, are called as children. Hey, look at those kids. Aren't they beautiful? They are my children. They look like me. But those who remain in the lies about God, those who prefer Satan's methods, those who prefer the darkness, who, who did Jesus say was their father? Remember what Jesus said to those who he's dealing with, the Pharisees? You are of your father, the devil. You see, this is not about creation and who created us. God created us. This is about who we are like in character. Do we look like our Father in heaven, or do we look like our Father from hell? Isn't that our choice? Yeah, that's what Jesus said anyway. It says, So while it is true that all creatures are God's children by creation, not all creatures remain members of God's family, only those who are like their Father in heart. Would you think that's fair to say? Anybody think that's unfair to say? Hmm? At the cross, which picture of God did those who crucify Christ have? What did they say about him? And this is, this is very interesting. I want you to notice their God concept. Matthew 27, verses 39 through 42. Matthew 27, verses 39 through 42. Notice what they said at him. He's hanging on the cross. Get this, get this around, around your mind. What, what are they describing here of their version of God as you read this? Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. What characteristic are they saying that they want to see in their God? Power. Power, Power and? Selfishness. Selfishness. Save self. 
save self. Use your power to promote self and we'll believe in you. Which version of God are they worshiping? Satan's version of God. See it very clearly. They could not accept a God who loved others more than self. They wanted a God who was like them, who would hurt others and exploit others to save self. And they would worship him. Yes? The devil was thinking through them because even though he instigated these people to put Jesus on the cross, the last thing Satan wanted was for Jesus to die on the cross. He wanted him. This was a temptation. Sure it was. Tempted him to the very end to come down from the cross and not die for humanity. And what, what was he tempted to do? You say it was a temptation specifically to do what? To save himself, which is selfishness. He was active. Notice that is the root to infect our heart, that we are infected with this desire to promote self, to save self. Christ was tempted in every way, just like we are, it says, yet without sin. So he was tempted to save or act in self-interest, yet he would not do it. He overcame that by greater love has no man that he give his life for a friend. No one can take my life, I will give it freely. You see, he overcame that desire to to take for self by giving self and love instead. And so love overcame that. So yeah, and and when we come back to the point, I think you made another great point, is that Satan was there instigating this. As we get through the lesson, we're also going to get to Satan's picture of God. You see, this is the picture of God these people had, that they would worship a God who was selfish and used power to promote self. They would worship a God like that. We're going to get to the root of that. Where did it start? And you're going to find here in just a, a, a little while in the lesson that Satan struggled with pictures about God himself. Sunday's lesson. Somebody read the first paragraph for us in Sunday's lesson. 1 John 3.1 points to a spiritual birth. John 1.12 stresses the faith in Christ by which we become the children of God. 1 John 3.1 stresses that believers are already God's children. God has taken the initiative to do this for us. The new birth is His work, not ours. We can bring about neither our own birth nor our adoption as God's children. Also, We do not need to worry about our status as children of God as long as we maintain our relationship with Him. This relationship is described as one between a father and a child. Thus, it is very close. The ideal father takes care of, loves us, and would give his life for us. What do you think about that paragraph? Particularly the question I had is this idea of we can bring about neither our own birth nor our adoption as God's children. Anybody in this room have any say-so in whether you were born into this world? None of us had a say-so in that, do we? Do you have a, a say-so, do you have a choice, a volitional choice, in whether you're reborn as a child of Christ? Yes. So you do have a role to play in that, don't you? So I don't necessarily like this kind of way of express that, that we can bring about neither our own birth nor our adoption as, as God's children. I, I would suggest that certainly without God's desire, we couldn't have done it. We couldn't have forced it upon God. But yet, can God bring about our adoption as his son without our cooperation? No. Our daughter. Can he force us to be reconciled to him? Or does he have to win us that we freely choose to open the heart to him? So while we can be born into the world with no volitional intent, 
choice, awareness on our own part. We can be born as, as human beings into the world. Can we be reborn into God's kingdom without any awareness, without any involvement, without any conscious thought or volitional choice? Can we, can we have that? No. And we have to have some intelligent, cooperative understanding, some aspect of ourselves that reaches our heart toward God, don't we? Yeah. So I think we have a, a more active role in rebirth than we had in initial birth. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. All right, Monday's lesson. The dark se- section in Monday's lesson um, says, What is the difference between Satan's and Eve's wish to be like God and the promise of 1 John 3, 2, that we will be like him? And this goes to the question that was mentioned earlier about Satan was there on the cross. What is the difference between their versions of God? Isaiah 14, 13 through 15. If you want to turn in your Bibles, Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 15. This is Satan speaking, or this is God uh, talking about Satan, and then Satan's first-person voice. He said, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. What did you hear? But he's going to make himself like who? And the activity, as you're saying, is I doing what in all this? I, what's, what's the promoting himself? So if he's promoting himself and he states, I'm going to promote myself, I'm going to advance myself, I'm going to exalt myself, and then he states, I'm going to be like the Most High God, does that give us a clue of what he thinks God is like? Well, if he's going to be like him, and he's doing all this stuff to self-promote, what does he think God's doing? So, yeah, so we still go back to this idea he sees a self-promoting, self-centered God. So, she says put that together with Philippians, which is our next. This is what about the, 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 the nature of Christ or the nature of God? Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now, do you notice a different direction here? Lucifer is self-promoting. What's Christ doing? Self-denying or self-surrendering. Okay? He's not grasping, but he's releasing power. Uh, notice what happens to Christ. What happened, by the way? Lucifer grasps, reaches, exalts, and what happened to him? He's cast down, it says. You are brought down to the grave, the depths of the pit. Christ surrenders, surrenders, even to the death of the cross, it says. And notice the next words. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the of God the Father. And some have pointed out that if you actually count the self-promotion steps in Isaiah, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will sit enthroned above the mount to the utmost heights. Uh, I will ascend above the tops and I will make myself like the Most High God. Five ascending steps. And then the sixth step, you're going down. And some suggest that this is a reference to why the number of a man is 666. Self-promotion results in the sixth step of self-destruction. Conversely, in the Philippians text, when you read about Christ, he takes six steps of self-denial, which results in the seventh step of God exalting him. 
to the highest place. And the seventh step of exaltation or glorification, we cannot take for ourselves. Only God can do that for us. And those who are self-denying and surrender to Christ experience that exaltation. Those who promote self. And what does the scripture say? The man who seeks to save his life will. But the one who loses his life for my sake will. So... This is what some are are concluding is the reference to the 666. It's the person who continues to promote self, self, self. Rather than some actual tattoo you can look on somebody's scalp and see. It has to do with the character self-promotion. What do you all think about that? Sound reasonable? Yes. Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph. Somebody read it for us, please. The false teachings that John confronted in these letters may have stressed the present blessing of salvation, but may have ignored the importance of living pure lives. The false teachers may not have worried about the problem of sin or its consequences. Therefore, John emphasizes that our future depends on how we live now. This has nothing to do with righteousness by works. We are saved by grace alone. But our lives must reflect that we are saved. So, John, after having called Christians to purify themselves, goes on to show what that means. What do you all think about that paragraph? Did it sound contradictory to anybody? Do you hear any contradictions? Or any at least superficial contradictions? We are saved by grace. This is not a matter of works. But you are to purify yourself. You didn't hear that in there? He goes on to say that Christians are to purify themselves. But yet we can't be saved by works, and we can't do that. You don't hear that as a contradiction? How do you reconcile that? Or, let me give you the Philippians 2, 12, and 13 text. Therefore, my dear friends, if you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. So you work out your salvation because it's God working in you to will and to do. Explain that. Yes. We can try, 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 try. Or make it try. The work of salvation, I believe, is spending time with God. Because he said, the work that I have begun in you, I will complete it. So we have to trust in him to complete the work in us. But we've got to spend that time with him. Yeah, what do you all think about that explanation? Do you like it? I think that's a, it's, it's definitely going down the trail. I like it. Yeah, so do we have a work to play, a role to play, an active, an active part that we have to choose to invest our energy in in this, in this redemptive process? The work that I want you to do is, is to build faith, he says. Okay, the work that I want you to do is to, is to believe in the one that he sent. That's what it says. I have a work, and the work is to believe in the one he sent. Is that something God can do for you? Can God make you believe something? and still leave you a free agent. See, he could make you believe, but then suddenly you become a robot. He could program our brains to believe things if he wanted. So our work is to believe. How do we do that? Yes? This is a, um, a great example with the legal model. It completely breaks down. The healthcare model is with the trusting the physician. And then we have to take the healing remedy. We have to take the antibiotics. You know, to, to cure, to, to cooperate in the cure. Let's use this example. We're sick, we're dying because we're out of harmony with the laws of health. 
The laws of health have been violated. God's law has been broken. You see, the laws of health have been violated. So now we're suffering under the weight of the consequences of being out of harmony with the laws of health. And we're dying. We're terminal. Okay? And so now the doctor has a remedy that will cure us. Do we need to trust the doctor and follow the prescription? Is that a work for us to do? If we do that work, have we created the remedy? No. No, No, we haven't created the remedy. Uh, When we take the remedy into our system, does it do something in us that we can't do for ourselves? Yes. When it does that in us, can we take credit for it? No. But yet we still have a part to play. So I think you're exactly right, Russell. The legal model completely breaks down here and fails to work. But this healing model, we see there are laws involved. Laws broken result in real consequences that lead to death. God came to intervene or intercede to put us back in harmony with the principles upon which life are designed to operate. And he has a work that he wants to do in us to restore, to regenerate, to recreate, to rewrite our hearts and minds. As it says in the New Covenant, I'll write my law on your hearts and minds. What law is that? The law of love, which is the base of the universe. He wants to regenerate it. What's our work? This is really cool. What's our work? What's the name of our class? Isaiah 118. God tells us to do something. What does he tell us to do? Come and reason. Come, reason. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. They're red like crimson. They're made like wool. Somehow the reasoning with God results in healing or transforming or cleansing from sin. How is that the case? Is it work to reason? Do you have to work to think? To weigh out evidences? Do you have to do some work there to study? To reach out your mind toward God? Sure, this is our work, to search for the truth with a pure heart. He says, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. This is our work, not to cure ourselves, but to continue to do that battle, that spiritual warfare, searching for the truth, weighing it out and coming to the conclusion in our own mind of what's right and true. As Paul says in Romans 14, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. Is that a work anybody else can do for you? No. Does that work um, provide the salvation remedy? Not at all. It only provides you with the truth that will remove the lies and open your heart to trust Him again. And when we trust Him again, we open the heart, then the Spirit's poured out, and He does that regenerating, renewal, recreating, rewriting in our hearts. So we don't renew our own hearts, but we do have to come to trust Him. Isn't that right? Yeah. Uh, Lisa. I just think it goes even deeper than a doctor-patient relationship because the doctor doesn't necessarily love his patient and the patient doesn't necessarily love his doctor. I think it goes um, even deeper with the idea of God being your father and because he cares so much about you, he's going to make every effort to have you come to that point where you trust him. More than a doctor would do. Like you can walk away from a doctor's office and he doesn't care a bit about whether you come back or not. But a father cares whether you come back or not. So it's even a, a stronger, deeper, um, more committed relationship. So how about if we take that and put them together and say the doctor is our father? Right. And, and are there ever any fathers that are also doctors? And then maybe that is maybe a closer analogy. Yeah. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine visited a class with us, and the topic, the title of the class was, I believe it was Renouncing the World, or Renouncing Worldliness. 
And after class, she said she was a little disappointed because we didn't talk about, she thought it was going to be talking about specific sins that we needed to be renouncing. And I realized later that one of the things that I love about this class is we don't spend a lot of time delineating specific sins and how far we should walk on the Sabbath. But we spend a lot of time... How deeply we can wait on the Sabbath. How deeply we can wait on the Sabbath. We spend a lot of time studying and reasoning. And I would say that that scripture could also say, come look. Come look and reason. Just look. And like obedience, a willingness to listen. The, the root of obedience is a willingness to listen. That's what God is asking us for. He's not asking us to specifically... Look at ourselves and figure out what our sins are and how deep we did wait and where the mark, watermark went. He's asking us just to look at Him. And when we look at Him, when we really, really look at Him and focus on that, our healing does occur. By beholding, we become changed. And I think you've heard me talk about the brain science before, that now the brain science shows that the God concept that you worship results in rewiring of your brain. Not only do we become changed in character, neurobiology changes. Our neural circuits are rewired as we focus on a God of love in, in a way that, this, that the parts of our brain where we experience compassion and empathy and other-centered love and a willingness to give of ourselves, when we worship a God of love, that part of our brain actually grows stronger and we can see it on the MRI scans now. But when we worship a God who's punitive, who's punishing, who's angry, who's wrathful, that part of the brain grows weaker and the fear circuits of our brain go stronger. And so you see this thing in, in Scripture. You know, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, which was believing lies about God, they ran and hid because they were afraid. The fear circuit started to fire. But God's healing plan is perfect love casts out all fear. Yes. We fear because we believe lies about him. That's why. See, people are more afraid of God than they are of the sin that's destroying them. You know, all Christians say that God is love. I can't go to a Christian church of any denomination and ask, how many believe God is not love? And get hands. How many believe God is love? The whole church raised their hands. Everyone declares that. But then when you actually say, well, what does that love look like? And then they'll start telling you these things. Well, what happens if you don't love God? If you don't respond and love Him? If you don't love Him back, what will He do to you? Well, him and in his word he says you are healed and cured with his word then you are abiding in Christ and he abides in us and we become like Christ and we don't have to fear wrath what is wrath? wrath is, comes from God it's punishment for sin is that right? Yes, and so we have people who would say, God, I don't love you I understand that you say you love me I don't believe it and I refuse to love you what's God going to do to them? it's going to change them like heal them? No, if they're, if they're living apart from the Word of God, then God's judgment comes. And what's He going to do to them? He's going to punish them for sin. Hmm. Because His Word His word is sharper than a two-edged sword. You know, I tried that on a girl I was dating once. It's like, I love you. Well, I don't want to see you anymore. Yeah, but I love you. But I don't want to see you anymore. Well, how about if I get a gun and put it to your head and say, hey, if you don't love me, I'll kill you. But God's not like that. Omniscient, he's all-knowing, he knows all men's thoughts. Why would, why would God, he doesn't need man, we need him. So is he saying, if you don't love me and you don't let me heal you, by justice and holiness and righteousness in my character, I will be forced to punish you. 
God is God. And since we are created in his image and for God and for his glory, he does not need us to glorify him. He is already glorified in heaven. Hmm. So that doesn't answer the question. So the question is, if we say we don't love him, will he say, I'm going to kill you? No. If we don't love him, he's not going to force us. Just like he he did not destroy Satan, he should have died immediately when he sinned in heaven. But no, he cast him in the third. So at the end of the thousand years, when all is coming to final judgment, what will God do? God will throw those into the lake of fire who separated themselves from Christ that did not believe him and believe his word and believe the Son of God. So those who don't love him, he will punish. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Try that on your spouse. If you don't love me, I will punish you. That is what is in the Word of God. Is it? That's, that's one of the distortions we often have picked up that's actually not in the Word of God. Yes? God's wrath is defined in the Word of God as letting you go. Let's give examples of that for those who haven't heard that. In Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For what may be known about God has been made known to them by what he has made, his divine qualities, eternal nature, and so forth. And he goes on now in verse 24, 26, and 28 to tell you what God does to those who reject the knowledge of God, who exchange the truth of God for a lie, prefer images made to their own hands with the, to the knowledge of God. God does something to them. And it says in verse 24, Therefore... God gave them up. Therefore, in verse 26, God let them go. Verse 28, therefore God let them go or gave them up. Now, if Christ took the sinner's place, who became sin, who knew no sin, he experienced the wrath of God on the cross. What did the Father do to his son on the cross? Did he exact vengeance upon him? Did he inflict punishment upon him? Did he let him go? My God, my God, why have you... Forsaken me, let go. The wrath of God is nothing more than God letting go those who don't want to be with him. And when the life giver lets go, what happens? You can't have life outside. This is not an infliction. It's not a punishment. It is the natural consequence of a free will being separating themselves from the source of life. And ultimately in the end, when we get to the point that we cannot be reconciled back to him, God will let us go and death comes. And there's a whole lot more biblical text for this. But this is one of the concepts that we have to get past. I agree. But how do we um, handle when God did smite people in the Bible? Yeah, this is where it often comes up because we fail to recognize that what God said in the Garden of Eden, he did not say, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, you will surely sleep in the grave until the resurrection. He did not say that. The wages of sin is not sleep in the grave until the resurrection. When Jesus went to the house of the little girl where she was dead, remember? And they were all wailing and mourning. And he walks in and says, she is not dead. She's asleep. What did the people do? They laughed at him. Why were they laughing at him? From their perspective, she was dead. But Jesus now is the light which lightens all men, right? The God in living human flesh. He is the source of all truth. Do you think he was saying that she's not dead, she's asleep in order to somehow confuse their minds, to twist their ideas, to make darkness fall upon them? Or was he trying to open their minds to some truth they they couldn't get their minds around? She's not dead, she's asleep. And then when Lazarus had died, what did Jesus say to the disciples about Lazarus? He's asleep, I need to go wake him up. Was Jesus trying to confuse them about death, or is he trying to clarify that what we call death on earth is not what God said in Eden was the wages of sin? They're two separate things. 
And so all the people that's ever, quote, died from our human perspective have only been sleeping in the grave waiting for the resurrection. That's only if they're found in the first resurrection. No, everyone's coming up. Either the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. They're all coming back. Everyone's sleeping. There's the first resurrection if you're found in Christ Jesus. Yep. It says the dead in Christ rise, and those of us that are still alive uh, will meet him in the air and we will ever be with the Lord. And then there's the second death, and the second death is where... But when does the second death happen? After the... The resurrection. Okay? So those who died were first resurrected. So everyone who's died right now is being is asleep waiting for the resurrection. Well, there's the first resurrection, those who are found in Christ Jesus, and then those who belong to Christ, live and reign with Christ a thousand years, and the judgment comes, and then the second resurrection, which is all the dead and Satan, and then the books of judgments are opened against the book of life. Their names aren't found in the book of life, so they are thrown into the lake of fire. And that's in Revelation. Uh, did I just not say that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's exactly what I just said. Everyone who's died so far will be resurrected, either in the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. So what's happened right now, the death that we call death is not the death that God said in Eden would happen because of sin. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it's not saying sleeping in the grave awaiting resurrection. When James says um, sin brings forth death, it's not talking about sleeping in the grave for the resurrection. It's talking about eternal non-existence. That is the consequence for sin. So when we look at the Old Testament and find God using his power to put people into the grave, which he did many, many places, that is not the result of, that is not the consequence or the result of sin, non-existence. He did not wipe anybody from existence. He put people to rest. They will be raised again. So what does it mean by the wages of sin is death? The wages of sin is non-existence. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, brings forth non-existence, wiped from existence. So there would be death to the spirit, death to the flesh, and death to the existence. The individuality of the person is gone from all eternity, space, time. It's gone. That has not happened to anybody, wicked or righteous. No one has been wiped from existence. They all still exist somewhere, either in the record books of heaven, the heavenly servers waiting for the resurrection, or they exist right here in their living bodies. But they're all going to be resurrected, and then, at the end of time, the wicked will be, be annihilated, destroyed, wiped from existence. So when we look at the Old Testament, we can't draw conclusions about those people about what God will do to the wicked in the end, because they're two different experiences, two different things. Yes? It seems like we, we do need to try to answer the question of Revelation 20, 7 to 10, where it talks about what happens after the thousand years. Could you comment on that? What I believe happens after the thousand years is that the righteous with the holy angels, Christ and the New Jerusalem, come down from heaven. All the wicked that have ever lived will be raised at that time. The gates of the New Jerusalem are open. There's a period of time while the gates of the New Jerusalem are open and the Jerusalem is on earth that the wicked go about making weapons of warfare. The implications of the gates being open is that God is keeping no one out, but yet no one comes in. The walls of the New Jerusalem are clear. You can actually see right through the walls of the New Jerusalem, according to Scripture. So the loved ones inside, the, the, the righteous inside may have loved ones on the outside. You may hang a banner over the wall and say, Hey, Johnny, it's wonderful. Come on in. Johnny still won't come. 
God is not keeping anyone out after the thousand years. You see, people are troubled when they think about the, the first death and God putting people in the grave because they think, well, their opportunity for salvation was ended. But what happens at the end of the thousand years, it's demonstrated that as they're raised to life, each person finishes out their life in accordance with the character that they've developed. With the gates being open, they are free to come in, but they won't. Instead, they make weapons to attack the city. Not because God forces them to do that, nor does God keep them out, but because their own character demonstrates to all, even when the city is there and the loved ones are in the holy place, they still won't be persuaded by the evidence. Why won't they be persuaded? And this is where I think can help you get your mind around it. Well, why wouldn't they come in at that point? I want you to imagine that you have your sister who was in the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas on the inside when, she was, when the place was surrounded by the federal forces on the outside. And she's got a banner and calling out to you, it's wonderful in here, come on in. Are you going in? Why will you not go into the Waco compound with the Branch Davidians? Because you are convinced they're delusional. That's how those on the outside will see all of us on the inside. It doesn't matter what we say, they won't come in. And the reason this happens is so that all on the inside can have the answers to the questions they're asking right now. Well, God didn't give them a fair shake if he took their life. Oh, yes, he did. And they're going to finish their life with the same character that they went into the grave with. And it will be demonstrated that they do this by their own free will choice, not because it's inflicted upon them. And we see this demonstrated all the time in abusive relationships. You can tell a woman who is in an abusive relationship, come out. It's better out here, come out. And she won't because she's convinced that what she's experiencing is love. It's healthy. It's normal. I see hands all over the place. I have so many more things I need to cover today. Yes. So what about the, con- uh, the concept of your probation closing? We've all heard all our lives. Yes, uh, the concept of your probation closing, um, the unpardonable sin, we've heard about that as well. My understanding of that is that you can persist in rebellious and unruly living, sinful living, so long that you actually destroy the very faculties that God has given you to recognize and respond to truth. You sear your consciences with a hot iron, Paul says. You warp your reason. So no amount of love, no amount of truth has any impact on you anymore. That is past your probation. Your probation is closed when that happens. I like what you've said so far about um, the city and the people looking in not wanting to come in. How do you reconcile the finality of it all? That's a whole other 20-minute conversation. <laughs> I would recommend you go to my website, comeintoreason.com, look up on my blogs, the blog archive, The Question of Punishment, Part 1, Part 2, and Part 3. Multiple Bible texts and references answering the question, well, how is it that the final, wicked finally come to their end, and, and what is God's role in that? And you're going to discover that God inflicts nothing. They die as a natural consequence of their condition, which is, which is sinful, and it's unfit. For life. Life is only possible in harmony with God's law of love. And it's all documented there. Multiple Bible texts demonstrating bringing in harmony the text of fire coming down from heaven and what that fire is and how that fire doesn't burn combustible materials. Isaiah chapter 33 verse 14 says, The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? Verse 15, He who walks righteously and keeps his hands away from murder, bribe, and extortion is the one who lives in the fire for all eternity, not the wicked. You see, if you go through Scripture, 
you're going to discover that wherever God shows up, the burning bush, at the temple to dedication, Mount Sinai, in heaven, Lucifer walked among the fiery stones. Everywhere God shows up, you find fire. Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. Yet this fire does not burn combustible materials. The bush didn't burn up. The temple didn't burn down. Moses' face, radiating, coming off the mountain, did not have third-degree burns, and his whiskers didn't get burned off. Okay, this fire does not burn combustible materials. This is a fire of love and truth that emanates from God's character, and it consumes lies and selfishness. And those who have lies and selfishness in their heart cannot tolerate the brightness. That's why it says they are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. They cannot tolerate the light of heavenly truth. But those who have been one to love and trust, they are transformed and renewed by this presence of God and live forever in the fires of his presence. Thus, Satan has got this lie perpetrated upon the world that the place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire. And that place is God's very presence, which the righteous are transformed and live for with ever in that presence. But the wicked are consumed. It's agonizing to see the truth of who they are and the truth of what sins and wickedness they perpetrated upon others. It comes, it comes down to them and convicts them and causes terrible suffering of psyche and agony of soul, resulting in their death. And it's all documented for you on the blog. So it gives a lot more detail. Um, let's go on. Tuesday's lesson, bottom paragraph. It says, besides the legal implications of the term lawlessness, reminds us of the man of lawlessness. The Antichrist par excellence in the climax of his activity just prior to the second coming. The lawlessness is exhibited by the Antichrists in 1 John who flagrantly rebel against God and, and align themselves with Satan. When you hear lawlessness, they uh, say that this has legal implications. Does the term lawlessness have legal implications? Most people hear it that way because of our bias, because of our preconceived ideas. Let me ask you this. If you knew somebody who drank excessively of alcohol, smoked multiple packs of cigarettes a day, never exercised, took drugs, ate only hamburgers and fries, had unprotected sex with prostitutes, rode with motorcycles without helmets, um, could we say that such a person violates the laws of health? Could we say that such a person is living in opposition to the laws of health? is against the laws of health or is anti-health law. Would that person have legal problems? No. no, their problems aren't legal, even though they're lawless. Lawlessness is not a legal problem in God's universe. Lawlessness is outside of the laws upon which life is constructed to operate. That's what lawlessness means. And if you get your mind around that, it's going to free you. So, so much baggage that has hindered Christianity for so long. This is what John is talking about. Sin is without law. Sin is against the law or outside the law. The question is what law and why is it bad? What is the law of God's universe? The law of love. This is the law of the universe. And being against the law of the universe, God is love. If you're against the law of love, what are you against? You're against God. His very nature you're against. The very principles of how everything operates in his universe you're against if you're not in harmony with the law of love. So, if one opposes the law of love and we're against God, how would a person who opposes the law of love represent God? Yes, as a tyrant. Yes. And then and think about the man of lawlessness. Remember talks about the man of lawlessness, Thessalonians. The issue's at stake. Remember 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, we're in a war, but we don't wage war like the world does. Our weapons demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Notice the issue is the knowledge of God. Keep that in mind. So, 
Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, a man doomed to destruction. He will pose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Where does the lawless one set himself up? God's temple. Which temple is this? Is this the temple in heaven? Or is this the temple of the Spirit right here? Which temple? Be be convinced on this. Did the man of lawlessness ride up into heaven after Christ's ascension and throw Christ off his throne in heaven and sit down up there as the one enthroned in the heavenly temple? Is that what he did? No. Where did he enthrone himself? Hearts and minds minds of people. This is the spirit temple. Get get your mind around that. Okay. And then notice this in in Daniel 7, 21 and 22. I beheld the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Who's the little horn? It's the man of lawlessness. It's the same power that sets himself up in God's temple. And he warred against the saints. Now, what kind of war is this? 2 Corinthians 10, we just read it. What kind of a war? A war over the knowledge of God. That's what this war is over. Recognize our weapons demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This is a war over God's character. This little horn wars against God and sets itself up in God's temple when he gets us to believe lies about God. This is the war going on. Notice, he prevailed against the saints. Traditionally, we've had this interpretation until God comes to some place up in his heavenly throne room, sits down on a chair and begins pronouncing judgments, uh, ruling on whether you're saved or lost and that's when but no notice what the king james says until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints not until god pronounces a judgment judgment was given judgment was given discernment was given you have judgment the ability to discern to tell the right from the wrong with mature christians are those who develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong hebrews 5 14 the little horn power that could wage war and win against us until we were given discernment until we could judge rightly and wrongly the truth from the false. Then I heard a holy one speaking, Daniel eight thirteen and 14. And another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the hosts that will be trampled underfoot? How long? He said to me, It will take 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. What sanctuary? What, is the sanctuary and the temple the same thing? Is it the place that this little man of lawlessness has set himself up in God's temple? Is that the place that needs to be cleansed? Where did the man of lawlessness set himself up? And this man, this man of lawlessness, this little horn power, raging against the saints and making until discernment or judgment was given to the saints. And that then cleanses the sanctuary. What sanctuary is cleansed? Is it not our minds? Now notice this. This is going to blow your mind. We might might have to finish with this. This is the sixth angel in Revelation chapter 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to repair the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false, false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. You think this is connected to what we were just reading about? This little horn power? 
this, this man of lawlessness coming, this cleansing of the sanctuary. Let me, let me take you through some symbolisms here. Anybody know what city the river Euphrates runs into? Babylon. An ancient, Bab- ancient city of Babylon, yes. Now, notice that the, the, the angel of the Lord dries up the river Euphrates. In Bible prophecy, what does Babylon represent? Confusion, God's, the powers that oppose God, the, the kingdoms of, of lies and distortions and misrepresentations about God. That's what Babylon represents. The river Euphrates was dried up going into Babylon. Um, in history, was the, in, in actual history of the world, did the river Euphrates ever get dried up going into Babylon? Yes. When, when did that happen? When the Medes and the Persians came, they diverted the river and they marched in and destroyed Babylon. Which direction, as far as the compass goes, do the Medes and the Persians come from? They come from the east. Persia is Iran. Babylon is Iraq today. Okay, they came from the east. So the the river is going to be dried up so the kings of the east can come. In, In scripture, when the wise men came to visit Jesus, from what direction did they come? When the Old Testament sanctuary service, which direction did the priests and the high priests always enter the sanctuary from? It's always the east. When, the, when Christ comes, you see the cloud. Where will we see it coming? From the east. The east represents the messengers of God, those who bring the good news, which will destroy Babylon. The messengers, the kings of the east, are the messengers at the end of time who have this message which is going to destroy the confusion that Babylon has perpetrated upon the world. Now, the evil spirits, they had the the form of frogs. Anybody know why? How does a frog catch its prey? With its tongue. Think that through. These evil spirits catch their prey with, with their tongue with their lies, with their deceits, with their misrepresentations about God. That's what these evil spirits do. They go out and they lie about God. People believe the lies, and they get held in the bondage of fear about God. And the Battle of Armageddon, this is where it gets really cool. It's the Hebrew word Armageddon. is is translated Armageddon, Armageddo. It means actually Mount of Megiddo which is actually a mount in the valley of Megiddo. Now, sadly, most people have interpreted this very concretely. There'll be a physical war over in this valley in Israel. If you were to actually go over there to this valley of Megiddo and you look up at the mountain that's before you as you stand, stand in Megiddo, do you know what mountain that is? Mount Carmel. Hopefully you're getting your mind around this. Mount Carmel. This is the great battle of God Almighty calling us to the battle of Har Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo, which is Mount Carmel. Anything historically happened of significance at Mount Carmel at some time in the past? What happened at Mount Carmel in the past? And what was the issue at Mount Carmel? Who is God? It was a question of your picture of God. If the Lord is God, worship Him. If Baal is God, worship Him. Elijah's name. Do you know what Elijah's name means? Yahweh is my God. That's what Elijah means. Yahweh is my God. And so this battle of Armageddon, this battle of Armageddon, is the battle that the, that the world is being pulled to to make a decision on who do you believe God is. Do you see God as a God of love revealed in Jesus Christ, or do you accept this lie, this distorted version put out by Babylon? Not only that, one more prophecy out of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, before the great day of the Lord. See, I will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. What is the prophet Elijah? He is the same in this prophecy 
as the kings of the east. The kings of the east in Revelation 16 are those who bring the message of the truth about God which destroys Babylon. Elijah, who, Elijah means Yahweh is my God. It's the people who bring the truth about God at the end of time that destroys the lies and sets minds free. Do you understand? This is the purpose of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was called into existence not to be an exclusive body of those saved, but called into existence to be Yahweh is my God, to be the messengers at the end of time to tell the truth about God's character, to free the world from the lies that Babylon has, has completely darkened the world with. That is our purpose. And everyone in this room has the opportunity to be part of that mission, to take the truth about God to the world. Reading from Christ Object Lessons, page 415. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of His character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of His glory, the light of His goodness, the light of His mercy and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of His character of love. That is our mission. And all these other God constructs out there are holding people in the bondage of fear, insecurity. It prevents healing, healing of character, prevents rewiring of the neural circuits. And we have all these twisted God concepts out there that, he's, that, that, that He has to inflict punishment. He'll have to make you pay. He'll have to torture you. Our mission is to take the truth about God as revealed in Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yes? I think our church is really uh, important right now in the fact that the good angel's message is very prevalent because of the times in which we live, technology, computer technology, satellite, and, and the fact that people are able to talk with each other synchronously. And when we can when we can do that, we have to make sure that we know truth from truth. And if we're not if they're not speaking according to the word of God, there's no light in them. So when Jesus said, if anyone receives the mark of the beast in his forehead or in his hand, he meant just that. Nobody's supposed to be there but Christ and Christ's Holy Spirit. And if we are listening to anyone apart from Christ, then it is of the, of the spirit of the devil. I think our church is very important in these last days because it carries the third angel's message as Sister White talked about. And what is the third angel's message? What is that message? No, the third angel's message is very specific. It's in Revelation 14, 9 through 12. And that says, if anyone receives the mark of the beast in his forehead, and that, that, that's the last of the third angel of the three angel's messages. I can, I can read it. Um, reading it and understanding it are two different things, isn't it? Yes. We have to not only read the word, we have to understand the meaning of the word. And the third angel's message refers to, when we use that phrase, all three of the messages. And the first angel says, And give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Whose judgment? God. Who's being judged? God. We are making judgments about what kind of God. It all starts with our knowledge of God first. It's the everlasting gospel, which is the everlasting good news. Not the, not the good news that we can have salvation. It's eternal good news, which means eternity past, as well as eternity future, which is God is exactly like Jesus has revealed Him to be. The good news has always been, and the good news will always be, that God is a God of love. 
And it is his character of love, which is the message that we are to take forward to free people from fear. For perfect love casts out all fear. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such lengths to reach us. And our minds have been so darkened. We are so conditioned. We have these lenses on that we, that we just don't even question so many times. We just assume that, that you are as Satan has made you out to be. Lord, we don't want to see you that way. We want to see you through the lens of Jesus Christ. Let our focus be on him. That as we see him, we can see you and come to know you as you would have us know you. Freeing our minds, transforming our characters, renewing us. Let us go out and fulfill this mission to be the kings of the east, to be your Elijah people, to take the truth about Yahweh to this world that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.